from the high desert in Far East West Texas, this is the world's fastest growing sports media podcast with Ed Sports TV ratings. Welcome, I'm Robert Seidman, and uh, for most of my life I had pretty acceptable social skills, uh, but somehow I managed to lose most of those skills in the 21st century. Uh, so for me, one of the more appealing aspects of podcasting is uh, getting to talk to people I should have been reaching out to and talking to anyway, even without podcasting. So I'm very pleased to be joined on the High Desert Hotline for this episode by the big leads, Ryan Glassbeagle. Ryan writes on a variety of topics and sports media related topics and uh, hosts his own podcast called The Glass Half Empty, which you can uh, download from all the usual suspects. Uh, Ryan, welcome to the world's fastest growing sports media podcast with that sports TV ratings. Thanks for having me. I apologize that I'm going to stunt your growth in advance and not be as big of a draw as Deitch. Ah, uh, you know, yeah. So, so, so far, sad to say, I'm, I'm sure Richard's happy. No, nobody is as big of a draw as Deitch. Uh, but, but uh, overall, the, the podcast is still growing. I'm, I'm confident this is going to, this is going to do numbers that will be better than the least downloaded podcast. <laughs> That's good. Uh, so uh, first of all, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, your work at the big lead. And, um, I, you know, I don't have any experience as a, as a reporter on that kind of a website, but I, I've got a lot of experience uh, with sort of the, the grind of blogging. Uh, and I, I got most of that with, with TV by the numbers. And, and uh, it, it looks to me in a lot of ways that, that, that the big lead is sort of set up like TV by the numbers was in the, in the sense that you're going to cover every, every single thing that comes over the transom, at least a little bit. And uh, I, I don't, I don't think people get the idea of how that works and uh, what kind of a grind that becomes and, and how, you know, how you're going to get stuff, you know, maybe assigned to you at, uh, at 8 a.m. or excuse me, at 8 p.m. that needs to be tur- turned in before you go to sleep. Can, can, can you talk about like how, how all that works for you at the big lead? Well, yeah, so we've got a Slack, and the Big Lead is one of, like, the OG blogs. Deadspin is another one that have been around a long time, that they're almost establishment media at this point. But, like, I really can't stress enough that the Big Lead is really just, like, eight people with computers who communicate from all over the country, and most of us haven't met each other. I worked for Jason for over three years before I met him for the first time. I feel comfortable saying that he hasn't met about half of the staff. He just met Jason Lisk for the first time at a USA Today powwow in Vegas last month, and Lisk has been working there for upwards of a decade. So we 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 really are uh, – I know we're owned by USA Today, but we're a small entrepreneurial operation. We don't have office space. We don't have a big – travel budget we we really are just eight people with computers and so i don't know that we cover everything that happens we're trying to get a little bit more discerning about aggregation in terms of trying to cover all the breaking news because if it's going to be some if it's something seismic then we want to get on it fast right but if it's something that was like maybe out there the night before we might pass on it in the morning if the person who was on the night shift goes by. And as far as what I do, I just try to – I my, my main beats are media, NFL, and WWE. And I really try my best to find at least one thing a day that's either faster or different than anybody else is talking about. Um, so – 
you know, I know, and I've, I've certainly read a couple of them. I think you probably do. I don't know, maybe four of them a year, but you, you, you've done some, some, uh, good. And I would, I would say fun, uh, you know, long reads, feature pieces. Uh, one of them was, uh, I think the most recent one I remember was on the sports reporters, uh, when, when, uh, when that wound down and, uh, and you also did one, uh, around last Thanksgiving on how, how great the good old days with, uh, Madden and Summerall on Thanksgiving were. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you make time for that stuff and, uh, um, you know, what's your general level of enjoyment working on that kind of stuff versus say the daily grind? I, I try to do two to three of those really big ones a year. The ones you mentioned were the most recent where I did Dick Schaap pegged to the end of Sports Reporters. I did Pat Summerall and John Madden on Thanksgiving, and I was lucky enough to be able to talk to their two of their producers and their longtime agent, Sandy Montag. And Fox made me a really nice clip of them together on Thanksgiving that wasn't available on YouTube before. I also did one on Howard Cosell. That was the first one that I did for the big lead. I did one on Peter Vesey, who really was um, the first, NBA scoop artist. And then I also did one on George Solomon who ran the Washington post sports section that like not just Wilbon and Kornheiser, but a ton of other people like John Feinstein, David Remnick, David Aldridge, et cetera, et cetera. Sally Jenkins, Christine Brennan, Peter Melman, who went on to become a writer for Seinfeld, Norman Chad. So many giant stars in this industry came out of that sports section. And I wrote about that one. Uh, I really plan those like three to four months in advance and work on them really little by little. It takes me a lot longer to research them than it takes to write. It probably takes two to three months of research between reading all the available material I can find or watching clips or trying to interview people who either are the subject or are close to the subject. And then it probably takes me a week or two to write And on those days, what I'll try to do is I'll try to get one impactful big lead post done before 9 or 10 a.m. And then try to spend the rest of the day holed up in a stimulants binge trying to, like, get (laughs) the words on the page. Uh, So so as a, you know, um, I want to ask this this question delicately because I and I want to make sure that I make it clear that I don't think that you're someone who is uh, unhappy with your job in any way. So I'm not uh, I'm not trying to cause trouble for you. But I'm just like when when I was a TV by the numbers, uh, you know, 90 percent of the daily posting that needed to be done. I I could not honestly, personally, I couldn't have cared less. I mean, I, I understood about the need to feed the beast and and keep everything going and it had to be done. But I, I personally wasn't really invested in it. Um, you know, what, what percentage of stuff that you wind up posting, uh, do you, do you really not, are you really not that interested in personally? Probably only 20 to 30%. I'm lucky that. Uh, I just interrupt you. I think that's, that's a very good, that's a very low, low and healthy percentage. I, I, I've been pretty fascinated by sports media. I would say my whole life, really. I grew up, obviously, I, so I was born in 86. I'm 30 years old. So when I like became began falling in love with sports, that was both the heyday of SportsCenter and the heyday of Mike and the Mad Dog. I grew up in New England and listened to Mike and the Mad Dog with my dad. When it started getting simulcasted on Yes, I'd watch it on there. So... I um, 
I don't know. I don't know that I, I can't say that I always wanted to do this. I think for large swaths of my life, I wanted to do this and then parts of it I didn't, but I definitely always grew up interested in it. And I'm lucky that with, with the sports media stuff, there's uh, there's not as much coverage of it as there is interest in it. There's a lot of people who nationally who do a good job. Richard Deitch, John Oran, Michael McCarthy of the Sporting News, Brian Curtis at The Ringer writes a lot of interesting media features. But because ESPN and Fox are the two biggest dominant media entities – and they don't exactly cover themselves except for sparse ombudsman columns at ESPN. Right. It's a big opportunity because if you're covering the NFL you get a, or the NBA, you're going to get a lot of times drowned out by the armada of people ESPN is covering the sport. But with sports media, I don't want to say I don't have any competition because I just named some pretty formidable media members, but – it's a lot less than with other sports. And then the, some of these people on ESPN, they're bigger than all but the biggest athletes. Like LeBron, Aaron Rodgers, Peyton Manning, Russell Westbrook, Kobe. These people are bigger stars than the media members. Right. But like people like Chris Berman or Michael Wilbon or Tony Kornheiser – are bigger than like 98% of the professional athletes in these sports. They've been in our lives for 20 plus years and the public is just very interested in their comings and goings. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Okay. So, so uh, kind of along a similar line, I mean, and, and with your, with your sports media beat hat on, uh, what do you think of LeVar Ball? Not, not Lonzo LeVar. LeVar is interesting. He's not, he's certainly not perfect. The misogyny with Christine Leahy and that female referee were to like, you can't sugarcoat it. It was deeply unsettling, but I also don't think that he is irredeemably flawed. I, I know you have to pick a side on a lot of these subjects and he's either great or he's terrible, but he has raised three kids who get Division I scholarships, raised the number two overall pick in the draft. There's never been any character concerns about any of his three sons. By all accounts, they treat people decently. They're accomplished athletes. And so I don't want to take that away from him. Yep. And I do think that he's worthy of coverage because – not just as a father, but as a personality, he's interesting and the general public is interested in him. And if you're in this business and you're going to discount what the public is interested in because you feel like you're a gatekeeper and there's a sanctity of being a media member, other people are going to cover him and take your market share. Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with you down the line there. Um, he is a compelling figure, and uh, he is certainly a flawed figure, uh, but I, I, uh, I think I understand the, uh, the fascination in him, and uh, I agree. I, you know, I, 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 if people are interested in him, um, he's going to get covered, and, and uh, you know, uh, unless he really crosses, uh, you know, he's, I think he's got to cross some line that, that's much worse than what he's done so far. Uh, before he would uh, be considered uh, irredeemable. Uh, any thoughts on that? 
Well, yeah. And see, there when when I, I talked to Grant Hill about this a few months ago, and this is before the Leahy thing, this is before really any of his misogyny, but Grant Hill compared him to Archie Manning. Like we, we don't talk about this that much anymore, but Archie Manning stepped in and refused to allow EY to go to San Diego. Jack Elway wanted to dictate John Elway's draft position. It isn't new for sports dads to be um, very invested in their son's professional athletic lives. So, so uh, to to bring together Ryan with uh, someone he's mentioned already and who has been on the podcast, uh, John Orand, uh, and uh, someone who will be a guest on the podcast, uh, we're taping this, I think today is uh, August 3rd. I am scheduled currently to tape with uh, Rick Cordella, who runs NBC's digital business, on uh, August 14th. And uh, yesterday... Uh, Oran had uh, tweeted out uh, something, um, uh, his his weekly column, and uh, then Ryan retweeted uh, John's column back out with the comment the uh, that the Gary Bettman quote at the end of the piece is the trillion dollar question, and uh, concern and the, uh, the 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 specific quote uh, from. Uh, from from Batman was the bigger concern dot 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 is making sure that millennials and Gen Zs continue to want to watch team sports, and uh, uh, Rick Cordella uh, replied back to that. Uh, uh, Rick Rick made the distinction that uh, that followers versus watchers is an important uh, important uh, thing to uh, distinguish. And uh, you asked him to elaborate, and uh, Rick's reply was, uh, is a younger generation going to want to watch a three-hour game, or do they simply want to be conversant on a subject? Uh, and by conversant, and this is Rick's words, not mine, I mean watch highlights and commentary via social media. It's up to us as media companies and leagues to convert them, uh, to which Ryan replied, uh, you know, do do they even care about being conversant? It seems like a lot of kids are playing interactive video games instead of watching sports. And uh, Rick's reply to that, which uh, uh, I'm, maybe I'm just looking for the bleak in things lately, is I certainly hope so, or we're all in trouble. Uh, what what are your? I mean, I thought that was a really interesting uh, back and forth. What what are your thoughts on that in general? So when I was growing up, it was like Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis, N64, and then PlayStation. And these were games that you'd have spent a lot of time on, but you couldn't play them versus other people. And then when I got to high school, these games like Counter-Strike and Warcraft and things like that, people started playing them interactively across computers or consoles. And that's a totally different dynamic because now you're able to be playing against people all over the world and uh, your friends all over the neighborhood versus just being on a static platform against the computer. And so our managing editor, Jason Lisk, he's got four kids. They all play a lot of sports, but they're not as interested in watching them as maybe he or you or I was growing up. They... And he, he, he theorizes that instead of watching sports, they're playing video games against each other. And uh, there's also a high school teacher um, who replied to me that all you have to do is look at what kids are wearing and what they talk about. 
these kids are not interested as interested in teams or athletes as we were when we're growing up. And I'm like, I, I'm not that far removed from this era, but it seems to be shifting pretty rapidly. It, not just like the video games, but these kids have Netflix. They have really the entirety of human history in, of content in the palm of their hands yeah. with all of these streaming vehicles and YouTube and everything. And so the appeal of watching live sports, which are littered with commercials, isn't as high to them as it was for us growing up. And these leagues have to figure out how to keep them engaged. Yep. So I'm, I'm, I am much older than you uh, by uh, about 25 years. So I grew up in the era where there were, you know, at first anyway, you know, they're basically like, uh, you know, three three broadcast networks, a, a couple of independent local channels, and a, you know maybe a PBS or U, UHF station or, or two. So there there and there there were no video games, no internet, not, none of that stuff. And so your uh, your options uh, for uh, you know for sort of passive entertainment were very limited. Uh, so I, I did. I got hooked on sports early uh, because they were on all the time, and there wasn't much else on. Uh, and figuring that out in this world. Um, is an interesting thing. I, I was really interested in Rick's comments, though, because, you know, um, uh, you know, th there's sort of this prevailing thought, I guess, that, that it doesn't really matter if people actually watch the games, that as long as they're talking about the games and uh, all, you know, all of this, the peripheral stuff to the games is important, that the, that the leagues will the, the, that the leagues will manage to, to make money. Uh, but but that's such a big shift from the way things work now that I, I can't quite wrap my mind around it. How, how do you, how do you see it playing out in the short term, say over the, you know, the next three years, do you see sort of a leveling out where you'll, you know, the, 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 the number of 1830, 18 to 34 year olds who are bailing out on uh, forgetting about how they access TV. They're just bailing out on watching TV in general. Uh, do you think that will, that will level off or, or you know, and will we'll hit solid ground or is it just going to keep going down for years to come? You know, it's really weird because Oren's written about this, and you, you've commented when he's written about it, about how the median viewership of these leagues in WWE is going up. But when I go to WWE events, which is like three to four times a year, there's little kids all around me, and they are not they they are at the very least conversant in the storyline so i don't understand the the disconnect <laughs> like i just can't fathom that 20 years ago there would be more kids than there are now when i go to these events when i go to cubs games lots of little kids white Sox games yep. lots of little kids badger games lots of little kids so they're still going to these events and it seems like they're into them when I'm observing them being around them. I just don't think that they're watching them live. Yeah. And so I don't I don't know how the leagues get them to do that. We're, we're, we saw with the with the open, they did that split box where they put the action on the screen and like the left. And then they had the sound and a bigger commercial on the right. NASCAR has been doing that. WWE has been doing that. We heard some rumblings that the NFL is going to be experimenting with that model this year. Maybe if that can shorten these games a little bit, that could help. Although I don't know what that's going to do for baseball because it's when when they go. It's not like the 
when they could shorten between innings that much more than they already have. But yeah, I think I, you know, so I'm a, it's going to be a big thing they have to do. Yeah. So I, I believe that the, the length of the length of games chatter, it's all a red herring that the, and, and it, it, you know, it doesn't matter if it's 245 or 315 for a baseball game. It's still too long. And in fact, I think if, you know, if it's not 90 minutes, it's too long and it's never getting down to 90 minutes. And so, um, all that's happening is people, people like us write stories about baseball being too long. And uh, people people respond to those stories, and then the MLB responds by actually, you know, doing things to try to improve it, which do nothing at all to improve it, at least based, you know, based on the uh, the results so far. Uh, but I, I want to get back to the, the point you made about uh, about the you know the venues looking very different, you know, from from the uh, the TV median ages. I, I have the same experience. I mean, I've been going to baseball games for forty years, and I would actually say, in in my estimation, there are more kids that you know. I'm talking young kids, even under the age of ten, at baseball games now than than, oh, at, yeah. than at any point when I've ever uh, gone to baseball games. But you're exactly right uh, that that doesn't uh, that doesn't transfer back to TV. Certainly, certainly not national TV. And uh, well, they're wearing apparel and they're they're cheering and stuff too. It's not just that they're like there because their dad or mom wants them to be. They're there and they're into it. Yeah, and my sense, uh, and I, I get the sense more with the probably with the uh, with the NBA. So the NBA has advantages over other leagues in a couple of ways. Uh, one, their stars aren't covered up. And, and and two, though personally as an old man, I you know I shake my fist at the at the sky and, and think think it's ridiculous, you know the the three hundred dollar you know pair of shoes that you can buy you can actually wear you know you you can't buy Mike Trout's cleats and you know wear wear them as a as a as a sort of a casual fan, uh, but you can you know you can buy. Uh, uh, Steph Curry's shoes, uh, or maybe that's a bad example. You can buy Nike, you know, Michael Jordan shoes and wear them. Uh, they're basketball shoes, but it doesn't matter if you're playing basketball or not. Uh, and the, you know, it, you know, the, the NBA seems to, to, uh, to score more of that than, than anyone else. And, and it seems like that's growing now. I mean, it seems to me like, you know, uh, all my friends with young kids that are, you know, uh, junior high or high school age, they're very, very big into shoes. Uh, what, what's your sense of that? I, I agree with that, and I don't know what if what if baseball and football just decided to go from cleats to shoes. It, everyone it affects everybody equally, presumably. Would it would that make there more injuries? I don't even know. Uh, you know, I'm just having a flashback. So when I was a freshman in high school, my uh, my high school football team went to the went to the state championship, and uh, the the quarterback's uh, father uh, ran the local sporting goods store, and so he got like special cleats for for frozen you know frozen turf. <laughs> And uh, then uh, some some school from southwestern Virginia, the the Bethel Bruins, uh, they 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 came onto the field with uh, with a green high top Converse, uh, you know, regular regular shoes, no no cleats, and the, and they stomped us. So uh, I think I think it's a fair question to ask that could the NFL sell more merchandise if uh, if they had regular shoes on the field? Well, I, Odell Beckham, it started the shoe, the shoe market with the NFL is starting to heat up. Like Odell Beckham just got the biggest Nike deal they've ever given a player. Now, granted, it was still like 20% of what Kevin Durant's annual Nike deal is. So it's, um, it's not making huge grounds, but I, I don't know. I think that they think that with, with Instagram and, 
other social media avenues, the the biggest like individualistic NFL football players are starting to make their brands more known. Like Martellus Bennett is somebody and Michael Bennett, those two, we wouldn't have necessarily been nearly as exposed to people like to players like them of their stature. Now they're not slouches, but they're also not star quarterbacks. We wouldn't have been nearly as exposed to their personalities 15 years ago, even as we are now, but they have all these platforms to speak out and be activists and things of that nature that, um, the the NFL players are starting to be more individualistic. Yeah, I, I still I still think it's tougher for uh, for for you know for the the non you know the non uh, prestige positions I guess quarterback running back wide receiver uh, to to sort of break out from the pack and I think uh, uh, Bennett is actually an in- interesting case on in how he's gone about doing that. Both of them, the the two of them are both like Martellus Bennett. I'm following him more closely because he's a Packer now, and he's got the this like creative studio. He has so many different interests that are going on, and I really hope he catches a lot of passes because I don't know how well he's going to be received if um, he's doing and saying all these things that he's not producing. So. But it, it, he's the type of player where if he does come out and catch a few touchdowns in the first couple of weeks, the fans are really going to get behind him. Right, right. Uh, what 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 are your thoughts on? Uh, and, and this is getting more and more attention. I think yesterday, uh, you know, t- the University of Texas came out with a you know uh, some high minded way of of uh, you know of of spinning that they were they they were shutting down their athletes from from tweeting or or, or, or not shutting down, but. Uh, uh, sort of, sort of clamping down on it. What are your What are your thoughts on that in general? My, I think my understanding is what they're doing is they're clamping down on reporters tweeting about things that athletes say and coaches say in these like small like scrum interviews. So they're saying like the reporters can't live tweet these things anymore. They, I don't know what the purpose of it is. It's the same thing. Like I said with Bennett, like. Tom Herman, if he's going to be um, this draconian in the way that he enforces social media statutes on the media, he better win fast or they're going to turn on him pretty quickly. Yeah, I agree with that. Hey, so, so just uh, sticking sticking with current events, I, I'm I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on the way that uh, that Baltimore handled the whole Kaepernick thing? It's so strange. I, it, it's it doesn't it doesn't show you good things about the organization that dissent that purported dissent between the general manager Ozzie Newsom and coach John Harbaugh and the owner Steve Bishotti um like that this disagreement leaked out I don't it's weird that they're consulting Ray Lewis about it you if there's like five cities in America that would be most apt to welcome Colin Kaepernick in uniform. Baltimore is one of them. It's just Colin Cowherd says this a lot, and I agree with him that. So if if Kaepernick, we I don't think I do think he's one of the forty best quarterbacks in the world. I don't know whether he's one of the top twenty-five quarterbacks in the world. It's pretty debatable between twenty and forty, but he. he if if Flacco's not hurt, 
you, I just don't know that you ever want your backup quarterback to be a story. So it's different than a situation where Miami has right now with Ryan Tannehill potentially going out for the season and you need to bring in a starter. If you need to bring in a starter, then it's more reasonable for Kaepernick to get a job. But I think that even though he's probably objectively better than a lot of the number two and number three string quarterbacks that are employed by these NFL teams, it's just not in the nature of these coaches to want to answer questions about a player who doesn't get playing time. Yeah. So, you know, even as, as recently as two days ago, I, I think I was resolutely in the, uh, you know, uh, uh, but by the time the season starts, Cap Kaepernick will be on a squad. Uh, now I don't, don't, don't know if I feel as strongly about that. And, uh, my, my, my take on, on the whole Baltimore thing is like, I just don't get it. And I, I, I mean, I don't find it strange. I find it stupid. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't understand why with that sort of thing, uh, they don't, they don't sort of get the, the Yoda precept of do or do not. There is no try. Like you sign them or don't, but like, n- yeah. why talk about maybe signing them? Like, I, I just, I don't know. It doesn't say good things about the, the, the that crew, that core owner, general manager, coach has been together a while, but they haven't won in the last year or two. And so maybe that, um, that accord is starting to fray. And then one other thing about Kaepernick, like uh, his girlfriend, I think it's his girlfriend, at least she was, um, Nessa, who is like an MTV personality and she's a hip hop DJ. She tweeted a picture yesterday of Ray Lewis hugging Steve Bishotti (laughs) and the house N-word from Django Unchained hugging the master. And it was like pretty similar poses. If their goal is for Colin Kaepernick to be employed, that is about the dumbest strategic thing for them to be putting out there on social media. Uh, you know, so, so I, I, so I'm, I'm sort of of a mixed mind on this. So, so I am from the Washington DC area. And one of the things I heard yesterday, I don't, I don't know if it was uh, from Wilbon on PTI or somewhere else is that, you know, that the Bashadis are very concerned. They're, they're in the, you know, on the border of the DC metropolitan area. There's lots of, lots of military in the area and they don't want to offend any of them. And I got a really heavy pushback on that because, you know, what, what those what the people in the military really are fighting for in a very real way is for Colin Kaepernick to have the right to do exactly that 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 Django tweet uh, that that is uh, that is that is a uh, girlfriend or ex girlfriend did uh, and have that be okay uh, and, and so it, it, it's it's really when it's when you're talking about the prospective employer it's. Oh, I get, look, I get why people go, oh, no, 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 I don't, I don't want any part of this. I mean, I get that reaction, but, but, you know, the, the, I think that, I think that the thing Kaepernick really is shining a light on is, wow, you're having that kind of reaction to this. And the, this here really is kind of, it's a, uh, I think the, the phrase these days is nothing burger. I mean, he's, he's, he's making a protest. He's doing it in ways that offend, uh, you know, not, you know, not it's not nobody. I mean, there are obviously people that are offended by it, but but so what is isn't? Yeah, isn't I don't think it matters. It's it's of total non-importance about whether people would be offended by it or not. If, if Colin Kaepernick were Aaron Rodgers and was going to was one of the best in the world, maybe ever at this job, he'd be employed right now. So it's like if he could help a team win 
and he does help a team win, their fans are going to forget their misgivings real fast. Oh, I agree with that. Absolutely. And I, yeah. Yeah. So the sort of the, uh, if he signs with the team, if he gets into a game and if, you know, if he, if he throws a, you know, a 57 yard touchdown pass, uh, uh, you know, a, a lot of that'll go away. And I, you know, I think, uh, I, I, I hey, but, you know, sorry to interrupt you, but you were asking about the big lead earlier. How many posts of our top 100 of the year in traffic do you think have involved Colin Kaepernick of 2017? Uh, top, top how many? 100. Uh, 78. Zero. Really? No, but the public doesn't care. Really? That, yeah. that, that, that is, that's very interesting. Uh, so what, so, so give me, give me number one and number 100 so we can, we can get, get an idea. I don't know what, for what I, I was just told today they had list, look it up. I believe number one is my 40 under 40 list, but I'm not a hundred percent sure about that. Oh, that, that's, that's the, that's, uh, who, who was number one on that list? Let's talk about that. That was really good. I should pull that up. Hang on. So uh, Ryan in the in the middle of July did a, uh, a 40 under 40 in sports media uh, piece, and he's saying that's the number one story. Uh, and what think. he thinks and that uh, whatever the top 100 stories are, he's been told by the powers that be at uh, at the big lead that uh, Colin Kaepernick stories aren't aren't among them. OK, so in Ryan's I'm going to bookend. uh uh, Ryan's 40 under 40 uh, number f- tied for number 40, Robert Klemko, uh, Jenny Vrentis, Vrentis, I probably pronounced that wrong, and Jonathan Jones. Uh, and at number one, ooh, big cat slash PFT commenter, Barstool Sports. So uh, at number two, uh, edge, uh, uh, big cat and PFT edged out uh, Bomani Jones and Pablo Torre. And uh, number three was uh, Carissa Thompson, who has been rumored to be in the running for for Greeny's new show. What was uh, whether whether it was the, the most read of your posts or not? Was was this the post you got the most feedback on so far this year? Yes, definitely. it was. Well, first of all, it's definitely the highest traffic post I've written this year. I believe it's the highest traffic at the big weed, but I'm not 100. Oh, you know what? It's not the highest traffic post at the big weed of the year because in the early part of the year, we had two posts that were on the front page of Drudge Report. Ah. And so those are higher traffic than these. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, um, and, and, and by the way, those, those weren't Kaepernick or, or, uh, NFL ratings going down related, the Drudge links? No, it was Aaron Rodgers drawing a play in the, in the sand, the throw to Jared Cook, and it was Gronk interrupting the Sean Spicer press conference. Ah, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so uh, so back to the feedback on the the forty under forty. What, what was that like? Um, you know, not one person told me that I was wrong about putting Big Cat and PFT commenter number one. It's just understood that they're giants right now, and they're, they have the number one podcast in sports and recreation, pretty regular basis, and they're doing this without – now, not, Barstool is an institution, and it has very big regional followings in the Northeast and the Midwest – but it is not an ESPN, it is not a Fox, it's not NBC, it's not CBS. And these people have come in and just really dominated this space. And if they wanted to start their own business tomorrow, those two people 
Big Cat and PFT could make over a million dollars a year selling ads on their own because they're that hot. Yeah, I, so I, I I tend to agree with that. So I'm just trying to reconcile. And a lot of people think I don't like the uh, I like the folks at Barstool. I don't have any problem with the the folks at Barstool. What kind of rankles me is when, uh, you know, I see people, uh, you know, sort of touting, you know, women's rights this and that, and and uh, and 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 give. Uh, Erica Nardini a pass for what I consider is, is, is participating in something that, uh, that doesn't always portray women in the best light. Uh, but there's plenty of stuff like that. And, uh, I, I, uh, I don't have any, any ax to grind with Erica, uh, from the outside looking in, it looks like she's doing a great job, uh, at Barstool. But the thing that I'm trying to reconcile is this. So there's, there's a lot of stuff, uh, that I feel like I can ignore in the, in the, in the broader broader sports world, especially, but even within the sports media world. Uh, and I feel like I have been able to ignore everything that has come out of Barstool. And even before uh, he was at Barstool from PFT commenter, uh, and I, I have no axe to grind with, with him either. I, I just, it's, it's just not for me personally. Uh, and I don't feel like I, I miss out on it. And not only that, so I've done some of these experiments. So like I used to follow Bill Simmons. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to unfollow him just to get an idea of like how many of his tweets I will still see in my timeline. And the answer is, I think 100%. And I, you know, I follow like 270 people. Uh, if, I, if you know, I can go months at a time without ever actually seeing a barstool tweet. And so I'm, you know, from the small lens that I use, I'm just trying to reconcile their importance. Uh, and, uh, you know, I can ignore them completely. With, with without peril, like I don't think it's ever, you know, I've ever been caught off guard because I didn't read or hear something that Barstool did. Um. Yeah. No. I don't. I don't know that any individual piece of content that they produce is essential, but they have the most engaged individual social media following of anybody. Maybe even including Simmons at this point. Uh, okay. So then, then you know, it's it, it must come down. To you know, um, the, sorry. Do you know, do you know to go on a tangent? Do you know about Chartbeat? Uh, chart Chartbeat uh, a, a little bit, but go ahead and, and say what. So you're I, I'm sure that most a lot of the listeners might not know about it. So Chartbeat is a thing that shows us our traffic in real time. It shows us how many people are on what post, and it shows us where they're coming from, whether that's the homepage or Google or Twitter or Facebook. And beyond that, it tells us how many people are on our page that came from every single individual tweet of a link that's out right, there. Right. And I want to tell you that big cat and PFT and bill Simmons are far and away the three biggest draws that there are. Now, now, now that is based on them tweeting out stuff on the big lead. Yes. Okay. Okay. So you, so, so, so you have sort of a, a similar data set, say here are 10 tweets from Bill Simmons and uh, here are 10 tweets from uh, the, the, you know, either, either big cat or PFT or whomever at Barstool and uh, uh, those by far and away, they, 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 they lap the rest of the field. Bill, Bill Simmons has tweeted two of my stories while I've been at the big lead. One of them was when uh, Mike Golick like blasted him on Mike and Mike early in the morning. My dad heard it on his way to work and told me I had to post about it. And the other one was when blogs crushed Michael Wilbon when he was speaking at the Povich Symposium at University of Maryland, which is an event that like George Solomon, who I wrote about, I talked about earlier, hosted. And I thought that he got taken out of context. 
Ah, all right. Just, just uh, let me get a, a plug in here for my own podcast. Uh, uh, speaking of George Solomon, I meant to do this when you when you first brought him up. Uh, I think it's episode number eight is with uh, George's son Aaron, who produces Around the Horn, and we we talk about the uh, the George Solomon tree as well. Uh, and, uh, and, and if you didn't listen to that, you, you might find it interesting having, uh, having covered, uh, George a little bit. Uh, so, so, uh, I want to get, I want to get ba- back to, uh, back to the, the barstool folks. So, so you're saying that, 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 that in your view of the world, it, it, it doesn't really matter, uh, about importance in terms of, um, you know, uh, of traffic that can drive you, 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 you view them as, as big as Bill Simmons, maybe even as big as the Drudge Report. No, 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 no. They're not as big as Drudge Report. Okay. Drudge Report uh, okay. trumps all. They are probably individually not at the level where one of their tweets sends as much traffic as one Bill Simmons tweet does, but the two of them together might surpass it. Gotcha. And, 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 you know, giving credit where credit is due, um, you know, whether, whether, and, and I think he would admit it. I mean, Simmons, Simmons owes a, a pretty big debt in terms of his overall fame, uh, to his time at ESPN, uh, which, you know, neither, neither Big Cat or, or PFT really, really ha- ever had, you know, uh, that kind of a stage to be promoted on. Uh, and, 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 and so it, it, it is, it is definitely very interesting. Um, what kind of, what kind of feedback did you get from the Barstool people after you wrote that? I, they were pretty happy about it. Um, yeah, they they also felt that it was uh, deserved. The I got a lot of so some people told me that Quay Chavez should be higher, and some people were angry that I put him on the list at all. I had him at, <laughs> Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, that was uh, the um, people. Are, I I got a. I don't want to say who it was from, but it was like a person who's relatively prominent in sports media who criticized me privately for not taking a value judgment. When I said that um, Quay has a fervent following and people who abhor him, that I didn't elaborate on what that means and why. And I, I didn't really, I don't know. My style is I can, if I, there are lots of opinions that Quay has that I vehemently disagree with. I met him twice. He's been nice to me. I wrote a couple pieces for his site like five, six, seven years ago before his site was big and before I had a job in media. So I I know I'm a little biased there, but with, with people's opinions, I believe in freedom of speech. I believe that people's opinions, good or bad, should be out there. And I just don't name call. So I, the... There are a lot of people who just believe that Clay Travis is an inveterate racist. I don't believe that. I think some of his opinions are problematic to me, but it doesn't impact the fact that I know that he has a big platform and that he's able to sustain an entrepreneurial operation. And I'm not sure how many people out there would be able to do that. Yeah, I, I agree. So, and I, you know, so I, I definitely don't think Clay is an inveterate racist. He's an inveterate shit stirrer though. And, and that's problematic for a lot of people. I um, mean, that, and that is his thing is stirring the shit. Uh, and if, and if you don't see it that way, that, that will just be another thing that, uh, that we can agree to disagree on. But I, I, I 
you know, I mean, so, so to put this in the context and, and if, if you, if, uh, if you just Google 40 under 40 in sports media, I think Ryan's piece will be the, the first thing that comes up in the, in the context of how you did this list of 40 people where everybody gets a paragraph and I'll, I'll go ahead and read Clay's paragraph. I, I think you handled it fine. It says he, he ranked Clay, uh, number eight. And, uh, and the, the text was, not too many people have a lukewarm opinion about Clay. He has a fervent following and people who abhor him. But uh, o- owning his own web platform in OutKick and derivative Facebook Periscope shows enabled him to have the power to reportedly tell former FS1 boss Jamie Horowitz, thanks but no thanks to an offer his, for his own daily television show under the condition that he would refrain from discussing politics. Uh, you know, these, these lists are are always subjective. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I don't have any, I, I mean, I don't have any objection to clay being on the list or, uh, or, or big cat and PFT or any, any of the other people. I mean, I think you can always argue, uh, rank where, where they are, oh, where, totally. where they are on the list, but, uh, you know, you're going to pick 40 and I, I think you, you did this and I won't get too far into it, but I, you know, I think, you know, you, you did some sort of just missed the cut as well. Uh, and, and one, when I messed up on, and you mentioned doing a podcast with Aaron Solomon, I should have had Tony Reale on the list. I talked to a bunch of people before his name didn't come up. I didn't think of him, and that was on me. He deserves to be on here, probably around the level of like Clay or Michael Smith, maybe even above them. And I just it didn't occur to me when I was making it. Uh, you know, I'm I'm scanning, and I'm 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 old, and my eyes are bad. Did you have Ride Home on your list? He's not under 40, ah, and this is ah, Talons. And, and, oh, and this, and this is what? I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. This is Talons. Ah, I'm doing gotcha. another list this month of people who are behind the scenes. So executives, producers, editors, PR people, et cetera. Uh, under 40 still or no? Under 40, yeah. Ah, so you, 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 ageist. These ageist lists that exclude old people like me. I'm, well, I, we, I'm I just kidding. Powerful talents in sports media earlier in the year. If you do most powerful people in sports media, it's the same people on every list. It's going to be like John Skipper, Eric Shanks, etc. Yeah, the people who sign the checks. Like, yep. You're just going to put the heads of the network on. So by limiting it to under 40, you're giving it to people who are up and comers and aren't going to be on the list that anybody else could make off the top of his or her head. So Ryan, you and I have, have had uh, several minor disagreements, but I think one of the things that, uh, that we disagreed more than anything about, um, and uh, I will disclose, uh, it, it, it may just be semantics, but uh, uh, you have talked about uh, ESPN's Monday Night Football contract uh, and, the, and, the, and the, the resulting games uh, and, uh, you know, how their schedule is uh, versus, you know, Sunday night football or even lately Thursday night football. It's just or, or, or certainly the uh, the late Fox in uh, in uh, the late Fox and CBS game national games. Um, and, and it's pretty clear that uh, the Monday night football is of any of those schedules, the worst schedule. Um, but but you uh, before the before last uh, I think it was in April before the last schedule was announced. You were sort of a fervent spokesman that the, that the schedule was unfair. And I was just wondering after the new schedule came out where you stood on that. I do still think it's unfair because ESPN pays $1.9 billion a year for Monday night football. That's $800 million more than the next person pays 
2015 and 2016, their schedules were really, really putrid to the point where Sean McDonough interrupted a game to apologize to viewers about the low quality of play last season. Well, I, and so, yeah, that's last year. This year, they're a little better because there's more divisional matchups, but it's still pretty objectively the fourth best package of games that the NFL offers. NBC's far and away number one. Fox and CBS are two and three. Fox has the Cowboys a lot. They've got the Packers. They've got the Seahawks. With flex scheduling, they're even going to pull away even more. And I just think that the NFL has made a conscious decision not to give ESPN marquee games. And I don't think that that's a fair way for them to be partners. Uh, so that's very interesting. So in the, in the business world, I, I, I don't have any, any kind of uh, – there is no unfair like that. So in other words, if, if ESPN agreed – uh, you know, to take the, to, to to take the kind of schedule that the NFL is giving them, uh, I can understand ESPN not liking it. Uh, but for, but for me, that is that is demonstrably not unfair. It's fair, but it sucks. So I think, uh, you know, we we don't we don't see fair and unfair maybe in the uh, maybe in the same light when it when it comes to. Bi- we, we might have a different definition of the word. You're going in the all is fair and love and war and business. Um, parlance, and I'm just saying, like, putting it in a vacuum, is this uh, is this fair behavior or is this unfair behavior? I believe it's unfair. Okay, so I want to I, I want to specify why the uh, why the semantics matter to me, and uh, and and it's in this sense, um, you know, it, it, when you when you bring up the word unfair, to me that it, that implies directly. Uh, that that in this example that the NFL is somehow doing ESPN wrong, and um, and and so that is my that is my my strong uh, you know rejection of the term unfair is that is because I don't think that the NFL is doing anything wrong. Um, I think it you know it does kind of suck for ESPN, but that's what they agreed to, and uh, and so uh, I you know I don't I don't think it's wrong of ESPN to you know to not love it. But I don't think it's you know it's wrong for the NFL to abide by the contract. And when the word unfair is used, uh, for me that implies that the NFL is doing something wrong. Uh, yeah. Well, say, does your opinion change if the if the NFL made a conscious decision after ESPN pundits really hammered the league's handling of the Ray Rice situation and three of their biggest personalities at the time? which were Bill Simmons, Jason Whitlock, and Keith Olbermann called for Roger Goodell to be fired or stepped down. If this is retaliation for what they perceived as over-aggressive coverage of the league, would you change your feeling about whether it's fair or unfair? Um, only, only in this sense. So, so, um, if ESP, so if the NFL is, is abiding by the contract. So I don't, I don't have the contract, uh, but all I can do is assume this. Uh, I have never heard anyone from ESPN, uh, either directly or indirectly, uh, to me or anyone else, indicate anything that sounds like uh, we think the NFL is in breach of contract with the schedule that they've given us. Uh, and so in absence of, uh, you know, of any, any chatter that, that remotely borders on that, uh, no, it, it wouldn't change my opinion. Now, I find that story very interesting, and that's an angle, you know, the conspiracy theory angle. Uh, uh, that I'm, that I, that I would be interested in 
you know, sort of following and, and kind of seeing like maybe, you know, okay, how like, like, you know, how much worse would you say the ESPN schedule, Monday Night Football schedule is now versus say three or four years ago? Is it, is it 10% worse, 20% worse, 50% worse? I mean, so if you could make a, a demonstrable case that it's like, you know, it's more than like 25% worse. Uh, I, I might change my mind, uh, but if it's just like you know what they got one more, they got one better game that year and uh, than than they got now, then I, I probably wouldn't have any any change to. Uh, I, I would still think that it's not unfair. Sucks maybe, well, but not unfair. In the 2015 off season, the, it was there's a noticeable drop off, and there the Hollywood Reporter quoted unnamed ESPN executives or ESPN sources at least, I don't know if they were executives, as b- under the belief that this is retaliation. But if you ask ESPN about it, they'll deny it to high heavens and they'll say that it's not a case of retaliation. So it is, like you said, a conspiracy theory, but it's one that I'm not totally inclined to just sweep off the table. Uh, and, and, and that's fine. So I, I, I certainly can't dismiss that that there were schedule changes, but um, you know, uh, you know, I'm thinking of it in this way. Um, there are parameters for what those games could be. And, uh, you know, how many, you know, how many, how many times they get each of the teams. And, uh, you know, as long as, as long as those parameters are met, uh, for me, that, then it's still fair, even if it sucks. But, uh, uh, if, you know, if, if the conspiracy theory, uh, gains some traction, uh, I, I would, I would certainly find that story interesting. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna get you out of here with this a, a, a silly one. So you said you are you are exactly thirty, right? Okay, so okay, okay, so this is perfect. So you're you're going to be thirty one, uh, and I am from that old school uh, J. A. Adande school of uh, I think I'm, I may be ascribing stuff to J. A. that that uh, he didn't that he didn't claim, but uh, you, you you don't wear. Uh, you don't wear like jerseys for teams once you're over 30, and you you, you certainly don't wear a glove to a baseball game uh, if you're over 30. Where where do you stand on that? Is that changing? Is that old man speak? I I, I can't wear basketball jerseys because my physique no longer makes <laughs> that a palatable option. Um, but I will wear Packers jerseys, especially if I'm going to a game or going to watch a game at a Packers bar. Uh, my wife probably would not be excited if I wore an Aaron Rodgers jersey out to a dinner date. What about a glove to a baseball game? I know you got a lot of baseball I games. don't bring a glove to a baseball game. Um, I've never caught a foul ball, and that's something I would very much like to do in my life. I don't. I'm not going to say that this is something you can't do once you reach a certain age because there's a lot of these seats that the ball comes at a pretty frightening angle and pace. And if you're going to have a glove to protect yourself, um, then I think that that's probably a wise decision. Yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement. So if, if if you're sitting in a seat where you literally have to pay very close attention on every play because uh, the ball might come your way, then then uh, then I am then I am actually okay with the glove. Uh, Ryan, thank you for joining the world's fastest growing sports media podcast with that sports TV. Radio. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Let's do a home and home. Thanks again to Ryan Glassbeagle for joining the podcast. You can find him on Twitter at uh, at Sports Report. And that's S-P-O-R-T-S-R-A-P-P-O-R-T. And you can find his work on thebiglead.com. 
And uh, I'll add links to his Shap, Madden and Summerall, George Solomon, and 40 Under 40 features that we discussed into the podcast description. So you'll have easy access to those. And uh, you can download past podcasts, including Anthony Krupe, Eric Jackson, and Richard Deitch. In NBC Sports Bay Area's Ahmed Farid. Sadly, the Giants haven't gotten any better since I talked to Ahmed, but uh, I still enjoyed that podcast a lot. And uh, one of the good things about not podcasting for fame and fortune is not really having to worry about growth. Uh, it's still early days for me, but fortunately, even without regularly begging people to subscribe or leave reviews, I'm pretty happy with the growth so far. Uh, but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't delighted to see someone leave an unprompted five-star review on iTunes. So shout out to fellow loyal little, big fan of the tribe. Thanks for that. I appreciate it. I'd love to see where you're going with this analogy. 